it's not bad to make money. That's like a huge thing. It's good. It helps. It helps you so much. Not like you can't help the world if you're barely struggling to pay your bills. Welcome to yet another episode of Academics Mean Business. This is your host, Dr. Lindsay Padilla. Sarah Fox is my guest today, and she currently is an editor and a writing coach, and she basically helps authors complete their novels. We had a great conversation about her decision to study a master's and and get a degree in literature but also about how, you know, disillusioned she became uh, during that grad school process because she was considering pursuing a PhD, but she realized actually how the institution was just stifling the creativity. Uh, and I'll leave her quote, you know, in the in the episode for you because... Yes, it's it, there, she had some nuggets and some things to say and and to think about how in the, in creative writing that there would be professors that would basically say, oh, you know, don't do it that way. That doesn't work. Um, it's just sad, <laughs> obviously, and very disheartening. And so we talk a little bit about that and we explore, um, you know, how she felt during that process. So also how she felt teaching. So she was a, a TA, as many of us did through grad school. And so she would use some innovative teaching practices and people in the department would, you know, question its validity and if it would work. And I just really relate to that so much. So we had a great conversation around, you know, the academy and how it limits us in creativity. Um, but we also had in, um, a lot of conversations around writing books as well and the work that she does with her business and helping edit and, and write and how that is very different than a dissertation or any sort of academic research, you know, the, the skill of being able to bring some some of that research into the mainstream, uh, you know, is, is really um, definitely something that many of us might even need. So that was a great conversation as well. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Sarah Fox. Okay, today I have Sarah Fox joining me, and I am excited about this interview. And um, I am just excited to hear about her journey and her academic journey. But I just know she's awesome and rad because I've heard actually, Sarah, multiple people that went to the writing retreat that Jamie Jensen put on was just like raving about you. So I'm just excited. Oh, to get, Yeah. I'm <laughs> really cool excited ladies. to get to know you more. Yeah. So, um, so Sarah, let's hear a little bit about your academic background, what you studied, um, you know, what you were obsessed with, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. And you can start wherever in your journey that you want? Sure. So I feel like it always started way before even I went to school. So as mm. a child, my first word was book. So it mm. seems almost destined that that was my life I kind of love that. I kind of love about that. It's about a farm book and I hate the farm and outdoors. So it's kind of funny to me that I was that excited about that topic, but that's where I started. And also I played, and this does play into all this I promise Greek mythology with my Barbie dolls so I was obsessed with Greek myth <laughs> wait how did you even have access to Greek mythology of mythology was it like a tv show because that's like where I was getting my content <laughs> no no my mom had an old copy of Edith Hamilton's like Greek mythology book Oh. And my mom wouldn't allow me to read Sweet Valley High or Babysitter's Club, which I'm still super bitter about. But she allowed yeah. me to read Greek myth, which is more racy. She just thought the content was trash because she was yeah. also an English major. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> I read it and I was like, oh, my gosh, these gods are amazing. So like the blonde Ken would be Apollo. The Todd doll, which was the little like, I don't know, seven year old kid was Hermes. Stacy would be like Diana. It was ridiculous when I think I about it. it. But it, yeah. So it was always destined for like Greek mythology. My mother read me Chaucer growing mm -hmm. up, like these obviously bolderized tales. It wasn't mm -hmm. actually the bodiness of the the wife of Bass tale. That'd be ridiculous. Um, <laughs> because Sweet Valley High was beyond things, but that was cool. And yeah. so I was always in this environment where I grew up with this these things. So when I was went to undergrad, I naturally majored in English with a minor in medieval studies and classics because mm. I really like the ancient world and like Latin's my jam it actually oddly does help me with my entrepreneurial career which I can oh, touch well, I on I can't wait interested. to hear about that so let's, let's put, <laughs> that, let's put that on the docket 
fantasy novels. You'd be surprised Got how it. much it comes up. I but see yeah, it. and then so I I studied that. So my interest was in like Chaucer. I ran into a professor who was amazing. She was interested in adaptation theory, which is how books are adapted in the modern world. Like Ten Things I Hate About You with Taming of the um, Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, or uh, let me think. Um, What's another one? Um, Emma with Jane Austen. Emma, yep, uh, yep. Uh, Clueless. There you go. There's yep. the words. And then, so she did that, but with medieval literature. And then I just fell in love because I love pop culture. And then I love these old, ridiculous things no one cares about much. And so it was a way of updating it and making it accessible to people. So I fell head over heels. And then I went to graduate school. And my master's was specializing in medieval English literature, particularly, oddly enough, Anglo-Saxon. So like Red Beowulf and all that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, t- did some teaching as a TA in Chaucer and also rhetoric. So there's a mm-hmm. rhetoric and media course, which is particularly relevant nowadays. Oh, yeah. And also taught English as a second language, which is really cool and mm-hmm. a learning experience. And then, yeah, I just wrote, the, wrote it for a while. And I thought for sure I was going to be professor. Like mm-hmm. I thought I was going to do the whole every tower thing I just loved all my professors in undergrad and Mm -hmm. I just realized it was just not for me for a variety of reasons but primarily I kept getting told I was too imaginative by the oh staff oh my I gosh I, so I would come love up that with, with <laughs> what a crazy plans. what a crazy thing to say to someone in a school setting well we need to unpack that soon okay continue yeah but like I do lesson plans for this rhetoric like we had a pedagogy class and uh-huh. the woman I think is lovely I just wasn't a good fit let me sure. just say that like yeah. it was a great school just not for my personality type because I'm liberal it was a conservative school things like that um but then i went to this pedagogy class and i went to do rhetoric so it's like ethos you know ethos pathos all that i was like ethos which is kind of like like how you present yourself to the world and how do you convey authority and it was like why don't you talk about clothing i said we can discuss clothing and how that creates an ethos and she's like that's too imaginative and i just kept hitting this wall there and i realized like it just wasn't a fit and Mm -hmm. I was like okay and also I had this realization that I could write this paper on James Joyce right I wrote this one he's like that's amazing it's new scholarship which is pretty difficult Mm -hmm. but I realized no one would read it except other people who are writing papers themselves on James Joyce and I'm a writer a creative writer and I didn't have time for my creative writing and I just felt like my writing that I was producing was gained in no one Mm -hmm. and I kept they kept fighting me on my sentence style because they said it was too short I'm like what about Hemingway guys what about Hemingway Mm -hmm. But the irony is in entrepreneurship and blogging, the short sentences are your friend. Oh, yeah. And the more simple language instead of these like five syllable words that academia is in love with in the colon. Mm. And so it's (laughs) fascinating that what was the downfall for me in academia was the strength in entrepreneurship, which Uh is like just the creativity and the shorter sentences, the more conversational writing style. It's it just it was interesting, the whole transition. But that's kind of my life story. So now I'm a book coach and an editor and. Yeah, that's how my kind of crazy journey. There's corporate world in between, but that's kind of the the bridge between the two. Sure, sure. Well, whoa. Okay, so I love this, and I feel like we can talk about lots of fun things. Um, My, like, I had to write down the too imaginative conversation thing. Like, the idea that creativity is dangerous in the academy is like, what is happening in the world that that is not okay right like what is happening in the world Mm -hmm. that 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 um that education isn't about creativity this is a huge huge problem right like we obviously have a problem with education you know most broadly as broadly as i could say that right with students finishing students being engaged um whatever like with students um you know finding value in their degrees um and then here we have people like professors and stuff actually using language like well that don't do that that's like no one does that anymore and this is the reputation that i'm that makes me sad about the academy like this is where i'm just like how have we not solved this problem um about pushing because we we're at the forefront of knowledge like there you know everyone loves that but are we not at the forefront of pedagogy and like changing what the canon is oh my gosh right i don't know so those that was all swimming in my head any thoughts that you have related to that because i think that's 
this is like if we could talk about this openly i mean this is this is where that change comes in oh so like the canon okay oh i have thoughts on the canon right now if you want to hear them (laughs) tell the english person thoughts on the canon yes yes let's hear it i went to a very traditional kind of catholic institution it was great because like it's catholicism's particularly good at medieval studies Mm. just because the history behind it yeah so it was really good but it was a very traditional people and they were very stuck in what I perceive to be the old ways. And this can happen just anywhere in academia, sure. but I think particularly in conservative and religious environments, not true for all of them, of course. Mm-hmm. But there's this marriage to white males in the uh-huh. canon that is driving me nuts and a resistance to new theories. Like I would give a presentation. I think this is just maybe true of academia mm-hmm. on the latest Beowulf that Neil Gaiman wrote. And it, with the like crazy CGI with Angelina Jolene, like not a good film, but analyzing like how it was a reaction to the older text, particularly oh, uh-huh. the theme of music, mm-hmm. people would be like crickets. Like they would stare at you like you had two heads. So new ideas, there was a resistance I found. And also um, there was interesting, like everyone was in love with white male mm-hmm. writers. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, we need female writers. We need people of color mm-hmm. that are also writers, like just different ethnicities, different religious viewpoints, mm-hmm. different genders. Um, transgender would be great. Mm-hmm. Anything. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's just not it was just a lot of resistance there. And I think a lot of institutions, particularly more of the conservative old fashioned ones, mm-hmm. have this just love, like, let's only study Dickens and let's only study Homer. And I love those guys. Don't get me mm-hmm. wrong. But like, let's also look at Maya Angelou. Let's also look at different people like Truman Capote, mm-hmm. that uh, different. I just all of these. Zora Neale it's Hurston, not like, for lack Ralph of examples, and, I get right. Like, yes. we know that there are choices being made about what gets included. Yeah, I we had this we had similar conversations in sociology so it comes with like theory right like who whose theories are considered valuable or or are central to like you know whatever like progressing sociological thought and that was a constant you know conversation so I could only imagine (laughs) in a space that um yeah old dead white guys was something I used to say a lot in my (laughs) class like it's just kind of like you know they're just they don't go away um and so how do we bring in these other voices so um and it's so interesting to think Think about those rooms and those spaces that hold that up and and then and then they're um what's the word i don't even know like uh, this the, the the maintaining of the status quo that happens th- because and i've talked about this in some other you know interviews and stuff because of um the traditional um you know, you talk about uh, conservative and, you know, uh, religious based institutions as well. Like I went to USF actually for my graduate work, which is a um, uh, Jesuit institution. So it actually has this religious history, but Jesuits like in history were a little more radical and kind of pushing buttons and like, uh, and, and, you know, focused on social justice in many ways. And so the institution really grabbed onto that. Um, and which was cool. And, you know, I did take a class on critical pedagogy from a priest, um, and which is, That's which, awesome. which was awesome. He worked with Paulo Freire and it was this, you know, it was amazing. And so, um, or interviewed him and, and had, uh, multiple, multiple conversations and wrote a book with him. So, uh, anyways, I like, yeah, it's not all encompassing all religious institutions, but, but even more (laughs) to get even painting more with a broader brush. It's like, generally speaking, institutions themselves are um, harder to change, right? They move so slowly. And so we know there's really great work being done, changing it from the inside, um, by, you know, being a teacher that can include, you know, have a syllabus that has no thing that gets, you know, nothing on it that is, you know, considered part of the canon or whatever, or as a, as a critique to the canon. So, you know, there's cool stuff being done, but is that still what is happening mainstream? And that's typically like a resounding no, right? Like, and so that's where it's like, I had similar reactions where I was like, wait, this is moving so slowly or I, you know, I shouldn't be the only one trying to do things this way. Um, I felt similar pushback with my teaching style, like that I was teaching Mm -hmm. in a way that wouldn't be, um, people wouldn't love, right. I cared too much about my students or I, or I was too easy because I didn't do X, Y, and Z. I mean, just such that kind of pressure that there's this certain standard tied to, um, you know, uh, rigor is another thing that comes up for me around 
all of this. I think that is even tied in like, um, so anyways, I like that. I think that's so interesting. So you, you felt similarly. And that was one of the things that felt like resistance or um, friction for you, it sounds like in the institution. Yes. Yeah. I also, by the way, went to a Jesuit undergrad. Oh, cool. It was amazing. Yeah. Like the Jesuits are the best. Right. They're but pretty no, badass. I <laughs> well, yeah, I love them. Yeah. I love my undergrad. But there, yeah, there was friction, especially mm-hmm. with my teaching style. Because mm. when I taught, so I taught the Knight's Tale, which involves love triangle. And I would reference things like the Jersey Shore. I love and it. I would just get, <laughs> yeah, my students ate it up. Of course. Right? Like the kids actually adored it because I was roughly their age because I was like 24, mm-hmm. right? And they're like 22 so it's ridiculous to think about that age gap in retrospect but they loved it so it was accessible yeah but then I got these kind of side eyes from the institution I felt like and even my peers who are lovely lovely people Mm -hmm. and some of them got it but others were like I think thought of me as a bit frivolous because of it or strange like this is how you reach them I'm not Mm. doing this to like dumb it down I'm doing this just because this is what resonates and it's themes that are universal and that are still applicable today and this is how this is how you connect the present to to the old yeah I love that well it sounds like we're really similar I so my thing that I used to teach there was actually oh gosh I Maybe I can put in the show notes after I'll, I'll research after so sh- her book can be in here. But um, I used to teach uh, marriage and family, um, as which is a common, um, I guess, you know, elective or whatever for sociology departments at the community college. And so I would teach, you know, I remember um, maybe one, you know, a year, possibly one a, a semester. But I was teaching marriage and family and I... Um, loved the work of this woman who studied reality television for 10 years about how we represent romance and love and dating on on television. Um, so, um, well, well, that was the part of it that I brought into the to the curriculum. But there was also she also taught, uh, you know, there was also conversation around race, obviously, and ethnicity as well. Um, and domestic abuse and stuff and how this all came out in reality television with at the kind of beginning of reality television. So um, not as early as when was the first uh what was it called on MTV where they lived in oh, a house real together? World, the real, real world. world, like real world, like New York was 1990 or something like that. Maybe something like yeah. that. Yeah. So it was a little I, before my time. Yeah. So I, yeah, I wasn't allowed to watch that when I was a kid. I was, <laughs> I remember my neighbor was watching it and I was a little young, but anyways, um, yeah. So to date myself there. Um, yeah. So, uh, she was researching it about a decade into the, you know, reality television phenomenon. So I think she watched pretty much every reality reality show from like 2000 to 2010 or something like that. Some of the major ones on the big networks. Now, I don't even think she could physically do it because there's one on every channel, right? At any given moment. But back (laughs) then there was, there were kind of some big players. Anyways, it was such a cool conversation to be talking about reality television, talk literally talking about reality and all this stuff with my students. But I would talk about The Bachelor and The Bachelorette all the time. And I would be (laughs) just like and having this conversation of like even telling my husband, oh, I'm totally watching this for sociological analysis, which I don't know that he bought. But I agree, like the students connecting (laughs) with those kind of conversations. um, I even think, uh, um, you know, we used to talk about this, too. And I'm like, you're not any, you know, you, cause there's also this idea of it being trash television, quote unquote, um, like, Oh, that's a waste of time or whatever. And I was like, you know, it, this still impacts you whether or not you are above watching Jersey shore, for example, and this is how I'd be talking to my students. It is still impacting you and the cultural like soup that this is happening in. Like, and so getting my students to realize like the even questioning, like who decides what is, you know, crappy television television and and what is highbrow television is like even part of this. Right. So I love that. I love that. And the fact that, you know, people would question whether or not that's allowed to come to the, the, into the classroom is mind boggling to me. Like, why would you not want to meet your students exactly where they are in a given moment? Like that makes no sense to me. I just think it's like you said, it's the highbrow. The highbrow issue. Part, I mean, there's yeah. Ob- yeah, there's obviously people who will support it, and they're all. It's also divisive for a lot of people. Mm. I just think there seems to be this, at least from my experience with academia, where if it's not a big board or if it's not something highbrow, where you're talking about some obscure text mm. that's not really accessible to the person, it's almost like inaccessibility is prized <laughs> in a way that I don't completely <laughs> understand. <laughs> Which is ridiculous. 
ridiculous. But yes. Oh my gosh. Speak to that, please. It's just like, think about the writing in academia, mm. correct? Like, it seems like the longer and more stream of consciousness the sentence is, like there's, I'm going to be frank. Yeah. Academic writing is often it's horrible terrible. writing. It's the worst thing to read it's ever. Not- yeah. It's like, who can use the biggest word? How can I make the sentence longer? Let's add more semicolons and colons and see what happens. There's got to be a colon in the title or it's not real. (laughs) Or on my speech, I have to make as many big words to be impressive. It's like, if you don't understand me, that means I'm not impressive. Even in English, it's like gravity's rainbow, Ulysses, Finnegan's wake. These are things that are valued. And I love Ulysses. Don't get me wrong. After studying it, but I need a professor Mm -hmm. to walk me through it. These are like considered oh, yeah. if you're studying that there was a hierarchy in the English department, mm. even like if you were like medieval or like postmodern, you might have been a little taken a little more seriously because you're using a dead language or a language that's not understandable, but still modern. Cause <laughs> Gotta love my postmodern theorists. Yes. <laughs> Continue. <laughs> and everyone was dismissive of the Victorian people because, oh, well, you're reading novels and that's fun and we can't have fun. Uh, I don't know. It was just this weird hierarchy mm-hmm. that was unspoken, of course, yeah. but was still there. Oh, nonetheless. yeah. No. No, I mean, this is this is man in the last like four interviews. I think we've talked about hierarchies in all the different ways that they play out in institutions between, um, you know, which departments um, get more funding based on their knowledge being considered more valuable. Um, Yeah. Like me as a sociologist over there, like, you know, quote unquote, studying people. Right. Like no one cares about that. And then, um, you know, my husband, which is the my favorite part. My husband's a physicist. So like he's so cool because he studies physics and (laughs) every day I have a physicist. This is husband too. too. What? Okay, I knew we should be best friends. So you know, when you go to a party and people are like, "Oh, what do you do?" and I was like, "Oh, I teach sociology." They're like, "Cool." Sometimes I get the like, "Oh, I loved that class," because it's always like <laughs> this time where they got to talk about cool shit, right? And then they get to physics and they're like, or they get to Derek. He is physics, apparently. No, they get to Derek and they're like, what do you do? And he's like, physics. And people are like, oh, whoa. Like all of a sudden, all of a sudden the real (laughs) professor walked in the room. No, I'm just kidding. I'm obviously projecting. Um, No, but it's true, right? Like this stuff plays out. And then, oh my gosh, I could speak to this just immediately thinking about this. Haven't talked about this on the show yet. Um, My issue, I think I talked about a little bit in my interview, but being at a community college professor versus being someone at a four-year institution boom like huge like mm-hmm. d- just thinking about the hierarchy of how um the students that move through those programs and like how they're how they see themselves and how they see the relationship to the academy i mean this is i mean this is all stuff and then the, the teachers that teach at this place as well i mean i loved it and proudly was like yeah we're really good teachers because that's what we get to focus on and um that was part of you know why i wanted to stay at a community college um but you know there's still part of me of like man would i have cut it at a research institution like those kind of questions come up and so this hierarchy plays out in the academy for sure as we're signing simultaneously studying it which I always find fun too so (laughs) so true yes so true so even within the discipline that's a great point that came out in sociology with uh, oh are you doing quantitative research or qualitative research Um, you know I mean there's so there's so many ways that this pans out as to what is per what is seen as more valuable information or what is seen as um, or something that is held up on a pedestal for whatever reason I think it's so interesting it's so true. It's, it's, it's the whole thing. There's so many layers and like between the departments and you're right about the community college mm-hmm. versus a research yep. institution versus a liberal arts college versus yep. like a top five school versus it could go on and yep. you're all competing for oh, like yeah. a thousand people for one spot. It's so stressful. Yeah. And then, yeah, I mean, even thinking about <laughs> what did you say? Your the access, like, and in, like inaccessibility is part of it. Like, I mean, that's, that is central to yeah who who which is i mean that's why i love the community college because i it felt like um you know the one of the most democratic uh institutions i guess like literally anyone can come there like there's no there's no uh process of of you know someone having to apply and get accepted or not or whatever um so that whole the, the structure though as a sorting machine as like you know creating that like there are, there are doors being shut on certain people at all in all these in in like from the bottom all the way up right and i think that is um when we think about that uh like is that what we want the education system to be like it's supposed to be the great equalizer and you know is it is that actually how it's it's playing out and i think you know professors are involved in that whether they're choosing to be in, involved in it 
I don't know if choosing is the right word. Like it's more like whether or not, um, you know, they're consciously aware of how they're participating um, and then how they're maybe challenging that within the walls of their classroom where they do have some of that control. That's how I saw my relationship to the institution was like, how can I change, you know, from what I can control, which ends up being within the four walls of my classroom? How can I change? Um, uh, how students feel about themselves, the anxiety, I mean, all these other issues tied to the way these institutions are structured and the pressures of society on them to get certain, you know, hit certain milestones and stuff in life. So that was kind of my angle on it because I'm, I am conscious of the oppressive nature of the institution. Uh, and so, you know, for me, I guess that it was like, I'm going to change it from the inside. And then that shifted. (laughs) So, you know, and you know, here we are. No, but I'd like to hear a little bit about um, the first times you were kind of thinking about doing uh, a business on the side, or if you want to talk a little bit, because you briefly kind of brushed over it, it sounds like you at some point went into corporate and got a quote unquote job, right? Whatever that means. Um, so if you want to talk to us a little bit about your transition out, I guess, and then how entrepreneurship and starting a business fits in that story. Sure. So um, I stopped at my master's was like, uh, stopped, you know, PhD was not for me, decided mm-hmm. what my book, I went to focus on my creative writing, which wasn't exactly happening in academia because your writings Mm. it's a lifestyle right like entrepreneurship is a lifestyle but academia I think is a demanding one and it's a different sort of way there's less flexibility especially in your studying so I went on got a corporate job because that seemed like the next step and I was a tech writer, which was fine, ah, but it wasn't making my heart sing, right? It paid the bills. Yeah. And then I found out yeah. through a friend of mine about this online business world. And I'm like, my whole life, I've always wanted to be um, in publishing houses or being editing books, like fiction books. And now with the mm. the advent of self-publishing, which was starting to really like heat up around that time, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I could get into this, like help people self-publish their books through either coaching them writing it or help edit their books with through for plot doing all the same analysis I did with books that were famous authors that I was writing papers about transferring that skill set to actually analyzing the content of people's books and helping them improve it that would be read by people on their Kindles on the subway mothers while they were nursing their children actually getting out to Mm -hmm. a more accessible larger audience so I started that on the side and I went worked on a corporate world for four years, just side hustling it. And then I went to New Orleans and it changed my life. There were signs mm. everywhere. Like I was already thinking I can maybe take this full time, but afraid to make that jump because entrepreneurship mm-hmm. is scary. It's not stable. Mm-hmm. And there mm-hmm. were like guides who were like tour guides being like, I used to be an engineer and a lawyer, but then I quit my job and I'm doing this and I love my life. Or there were signs like everywhere saying, follow your dreams. Or yeah. it was just like all these signs like the universe or god whatever you believe in was telling me sarah you need to go and i'm like that's it and i put in my notice and took it full time it's been a year and a half and haven't looked back it's been amazing oh my gosh so it sounds like you've been you've been full-time for a year and a half Mm -hmm. yes awesome so i'm coming up on being full-time for about a year but like my business has been has been around since about a year and a half so that's really cool so when you decided to take it full time did you have some clients coming in and you had a path like set up a little bit um I had been doing my business for about three years at that point so I've had clients in the past I've had connections so I could go into it a little more steady knowing that I could get some people pretty quickly and I did manage to do that it was like exceeding my old income at my corporate job after about six six to eight months something like that it was awesome Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Well, congratulations. That's really Thank awesome. You. I know that's no small feat. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I'd like to maybe talk a little bit about um, those kind of maybe some of those first steps. I think, um, you know, I want my listeners, especially for those who haven't um haven't not necessarily leave and they could we could talk about it like that but it's more like I just want people to get some really cool actionable things Mm -hmm. so if you could talk about maybe what it was like in um in your nine to five that you were working um and and when you started taking on side clients like what what were some of the actions that you took to make that happen to make that kind of second income uh come come to life 
Okay, yeah. I joined like a small mastermind and like hired a business coach, which is huge, right? Because I automatically started getting those connections to clients just through the people in the group. Yes. And got the coaching I needed to start it. Like I had to invest and thank God I had the income from my job that I could afford to pay pay for things like a website and the coaching. So that really helped me get started. And it was just a lot of work. I'm not going to lie. Just you have to work weekends. You have to work evenings. But fortunately, I find for people at least meant for this, that I've seen personally is that you have a like it's an addiction almost like there's this passion you have for it where it doesn't feel like work it can be tiring but you're just so excited about your business and you're so on fire that's the adrenaline that keeps you going until you can kind of scale it to the point where you can take it full time but yeah I just think hiring a coach and connecting with people and it was back when Facebook groups were different than what they were now but just connecting with people (laughs) through Facebook groups was huge for me which unfortunately I don't know if that still you would know better than I do if that quite still applies but networking is like the number one thing I can tell people it's like honestly now for me where I get clients is meeting people in real life like going to retreats going to conferences just or getting on phone calls with people that I see that seem nice in groups or something and just or mutual friends or just connections and I think that's really a great place to start and you'd be surprised by how many people in your real life need your services that you just dismissed like I've gotten a couple clients from people in real life and those are quote unquote real life and that's always shocking to me that there's people already in my world that need help I find a lot of people dismiss that, but Mm -hmm. you'd be surprised. You would be surprised. Yeah, yeah. I love that. And I think, I think, um, you know, a common theme um, that is popping up for me is, is definitely this idea of it's so glaringly obvious, like you love books. <laughs> and you were challenging how like institutions um, were telling you that they could be written in that specific space. So you're like, cool, I'll just create my own space because this doesn't make sense. <laughs> so um, your business, I, I, I love that. I'd love to hear maybe a little bit bit about your business model, because I do want, you know, my guests to really kind of uh, represent to people who are listening, like what's possible with things that they know how to do from from academia um, and their life. So like, you know, you obviously have liked books since the beginning. So um, tell us a little bit about how your business is, is structured um, and and how you were able to tie in those kind of things that you're obsessed about and and really passionate about. Sure. That's that's great. Um, so for my business model, it's coaching and editing. So people can either come to me if they're trying to write a book. This usually tends to be more entrepreneurs. Um, the nonfiction book, they have their message they want to get out to the world. And that's awesome. And I kind of walk them through the process through coaching and also some feedback on their work and that's how they get a book done there's also people come to me and oddly enough this is more the fiction writers um they come to me who have finished a book so i work with two different types of people and they want help editing it and so i get them through the different stages of editing which is developmental which is pulling in which is content editing essentially so it's pulling in my academia this has been huge for me i cannot highlight enough how much my master's degree and teaching has helped me with this with the coaching and like as a writing consultant in a writing center um, in academia. So it's working with people who don't know where to begin, right? So like your students might not know how to write a paper or when I'm in the writing center, there was a variety of different projects in academia or as a teacher, you're teaching things that might be, especially with medieval things, so crazy to your students, right? Or they're not familiar with <laughs> yeah, it Yeah, it's like, like no connection to it whatsoever, yeah. So it's helped me with the coaching tons. So like I'm used to going with people who are scared, who are nervous, you work with so many different people in academia and different types of people, like males, females, people from different backgrounds. It's great. Um, in the case of my uh, ESL courses, people from different countries. So, right, you're like seeing a whole bunch of cultures. So it's really good at teaching you how to put things in the simplest terms possible and walking people through things that might be difficult or scary. So academia is awesome for that. Um, But with the editing, the content editing, which is one stage, it's helping, like, I analyze books, right? Like, I had to look at how are these characters acting? How is this plot working in this context? And I take the same kind of thinking hat that they trained me to have. So if I can get through Ulysses, I tell people, like, I can get through your book. (laughs) 
difficult. It might not be easy to understand. As a at scale of scale from one to Ulysses, or or <laughs> yeah, from Twilight to Ulysses, uh, I <laughs> no, that's pretty great. So I go through that, and I use that same analytical ability, which you know how grad school is. It teaches you analysis really well. Yeah. And yep. people are like, I'm amazed at how much you, and also you analyze the smallest things. So your mm. my brain is good at really details. the minutia and the details, because mm-hmm. that's what you would write a whole paper is on is on one word in a book, right? I wrote one on the word refuge and an 18th century play. Yes, it can be that like detail. You can see how it plays out in a whole book. So all the analytical skills are so clutch for actually my content editing. And then when you get to the copy editing, which is more the word level or the sentence structure level, again, I graded papers. I taught people grammar. I was had to correct all this grammatical errors from countless hundreds and hundreds of pages. And I also taught grammar to people. So it's just this ingrained thing. And I can also know what words to not use with my clients because if I use certain grammatical terms, people will be like a dangling modifier. What? Mm. So I'll use it in terms <laughs> that I would use with my Dang students. Dang mod. Damn it. I remember too. That was fun. Dang mods. <laughs> so with my students, that would apply, right? So I had to eat, breathe, and drink this stuff. So it's really easy, I think, for me to be, again, the word accessible keeps coming up, accessible to people and help them. And you also learn when you're like a teacher, how to, it's kind of part therapist sometimes it feels like. So you learn to navigate the emotions around giving feedback, which has helped me. So like, I'm not one of those, I've seen and encountered editors with my own writing and just, I've heard of people through the grapevine that are really harsh on their clients and like are a little stricter. And I've learned through teaching the kind of take a compassionate approach and a patience to teach you the level of patience and just knowing how to react to people who are not in your world. Like teaching while it is a bubble and an ivory tower, it also teaches you how to interact with people not in that bubble through your classroom time. I love it. Yeah, um, there's something about uh, the empathy, right? The the understanding and empathy for the learner that being a teacher, I think, helps. Specifically, I think in entrepreneurship, I, I you know, maybe a message that's coming through in my podcast as well is this in all these conversations is that like the teaching, teaching is happening a lot in entrepreneurship that as a skill set um, that we were able to practice um, some of us longer than others, but like that we were able to practice day in and day out that relationship um, that comes with the, the teacher and the learner is really important. And I could only imagine, especially with like ESL work as well, um, how far removed you may be from learning English as a second language. I've, I had, I have a lot of ESL friends, uh, people who teach in that, uh, particularly through my grad school. Cause that was my, my dissertation advisor did a lot of work in that. And, um, yeah, like, you know, they're trying to learn second languages themselves just to really connect with where their students are. And, and at the community college level specifically, like English as second language, these, you know, these, courses are huge for people's employment, for their family, for, you know, reasons around immigration and and all of this. So like there's like that all comes into the classroom. It is not. (laughs) And then what's going on right in the world with like how, you know, our government is treating this. Like, so, I mean, to think that you're just teaching English or whatever is just, you know, so then I think we, so we knew that through teaching and then we come to the entrepreneur space and to think that you're just helping someone get some sort of strategic, you know, ROI or whatever. It's like, no, you're actually like helping them navigate their emotions um, towards, you know, and the heightened emotions that come with entrepreneurship in many ways. But like, yeah, to them being productive and, 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 you know, moving forward in their business. And, you know, I was surprised to find in my course creation helping that I was like helping I, I help give, I, I help like, and I nurture the confidence that people need to be able to teach and feel good <laughs> that they know enough to, to guide a group of people. And, you know, they don't know that that's something that they're missing, but that ends up being what I help them do. So with book writing, you know, people finding their voice, uh, writing down, especially maybe if it's a biography, but even just that, you know, the, the writing that is a uh, vulnerability, right? That it's like one of the most vulnerable things you could do. Um, uh, you know, that you have that experience in the classroom to really help coach people. Uh, because yeah, teaching is part coaching. It's part therapy and it's part, you know, com- you know, 
sending off or sorry, exchanging knowledge. Um, but you know, obviously as a teacher being aware of that is important. You can't lean too far any of those ways, right? If you're, if you're going straight to like, Oh my gosh. And, and you know, we, I've talked about this with some folks too. Like you, you mentioned editors being really harsh. We talked about this in an interview about journals, like, like, Oh my gosh, sending off articles to journals. Um, I don't know if you did that as part of your master's work, but you know, there can be someone on that committee then, and it's anonymous and they're just like, they just rip you apart. And it's like, there's a, a human being on the other side of this article that spent hours and hours of their life. Right. And so that just this idea of just that, of understanding the other person receiving information, I think is central to teaching. It is. It's so true. It's so crucial. And you see it real time. Like you can see in people's faces, you get really quick, fast feedback on that. Right. So- <laughs> when you suck at like communicating critique. Yeah. No, it's like a crash course. Like, and also it also teaches is. you how to be, I think it's so crucial to entrepreneurship in some ways, because you have to be fast on your feet when you're a teacher. Mm. You will get the most random things thrown at you that you could not guess that was yes, coming. Hell yeah. And it teaches mm-hmm. you confidence. Like I taught classes with my ESL in particular. There are people older than me. There are people yep. who are generals or big deals in their country. And I'm this like 23 yep. year old girl or woman in that case. But I was still very young. I think for the age teaching mm-hmm. them and you just have to have that confidence projected or they'll walk all over like people walk over you in general mm-hmm. especially like in my general classes like 18 year old boys can be also really yep. difficult and how do you handle it when a student hits on you because there's probably only a year age gap like you <laughs> deal yep. with the most random things and yep. it's learning the grace and learning that kind of cool under pressure Mm-hmm. I think, which is also, I think, a key component to being successful in entrepreneurship and kind of the creativity mm-hmm. you have to get in unexpected situations that I think what's amazing about academia and teaching is it it gives you those abilities to navigate kind of tricky situations and yep. be confident and get, get real-time feedback and just be a creative, grace, gracious person. Yes. But yeah. And I... Ugh. Like I'm watching, <clears throat> I'm watching a lot of people build really amazing businesses and empires is the language they like to use, which we could unpack. <laughs> but so let's just say <laughs> they're building There's these so much large. I could say. Yeah, they're, <laughs> they're building because because words totally matter, right, Sarah? Weird, right? Um, yeah. So people are building businesses that are um, doing very well and they're bringing in lots of money and um, <clears throat> we're all just trying to figure it out like uh, like and I think many of us don't have this quote-unquote business background which like I'll be honest like we can talk about this like you know our business schools teaching like business like what you know that kind of thing I this what we're doing in this entrepreneurship I mean it's like boots on the ground figuring out business and I think lots of people never have learned anything and I'm getting that from a lot of my guests too it's like whoa I didn't have a business bone in my body which Lizette said on the inter- uh, like on her interview and it's like yeah I didn't either like and so here I am figuring it out but you know what I do well is I know know how to make people feel good Uh, or like, and I'm also know how to read a room and I also know how to like X, Y, Z where some of these other folks, you know, they're, they're, they're in charge of people's lives. Like they're paying contractors and, um, you know, yes, these contractors you're paying are in your business and are, and are, you're dependent on them for their work, but they're also human beings who have families and, and all of that. And so I've seen some really scary things around firing and hiring and, and the way people that are getting hired into these businesses are being treated things that I do not, I like made a declaration that I do not want to recreate, right? I want to take feminist, you know, you know, anti-racist policies into my business. That's why I'm creating this. So I can create something that isn't, um, you know, part of that problem, um, these like problematic practices. But of course, you know, it's uh, that we're, I'm going to witness this. Right. And so, um, and yeah, I guess what I'm trying to say is I feel like, you know, we have, uh, it's cool. It, it's, it's, it's such a responsibility, I guess, as an entrepreneur to really think about how what we know about the world as academics specifically because we're studying this kind of stuff all the time um we have theories to associate with it we know where it you know we know how that stuff works so then we look at these 
these um, this world that we're in, this world of entrepreneurship, and we can say, oh, I'm not going to replicate this, or I'm going to pay a living wage, or I'm going to impl- in- institute this policy. And these are these are cool actions that I get to take without any answering to anyone else, really, except myself. And so that's been a really empowering part about having a business for me that I... I guess I didn't realize I would have happened, but has in practice. It's so true. Yeah, I'm building an agency right now. I've just mm-hmm. hired on two people and I totally understand what you mean about realizing what practices do I want to implement? What do I not want to do? And it's just keeping that level of humanity and graciousness throughout the whole thing. And also, again, the academia helped with that. Like I trained yeah. students, taught them that I'm training my employees. There's so much that's applicable. That it's actually overlaps. Yeah, it's breathtaking. Yeah, I love that. Well, let's hear about this fantasy novel. Because <laughs> I, um, I wrote that down. And I was like, I would like to ask her about how that's related to entrepreneurship since we're on the subject. <laughs> it's related to my background, my classics background. But yes, so many writers, oh my gosh, use Latin and fantasy novels. It's like the go to made up fantasy uh, language, right? I so can I can that. actually mm-hmm. correct their Latin. I'm like, hey, I thought this was a useless life skill in the real world. But it turns <laughs> out I'm helping correct people's Latin. I'm like, oh, a side benefit of working with me, fantasy writers, I'll correct your Latin. Okay. Your spells will be correct. Right. Oh my gosh, I love it. A benefit, not a feature on your sales page for why they should sign up with you. I love it. That's so great. So great. Um, Okay, so what about maybe some of the struggles? (laughs) Is there any sort of part about business um, that running a business that maybe is leftover residual academia? (laughs) Oh, yes, I do. Yeah, definitely. Actually, I do. It's around pricing. So what's fascinating is as a teaching assistant, you get paid $11,000 a year, which is below (laughs) the poverty line. Fun fact, at least with the school I went to. Um, It could have changed because it's been a couple years, but so you feel like, oh, and it's also this whole thing of there's a message of you're being of service and it's about the love of things and not the money, which causes money mindset issues with me. And it makes you have an uncomfortable sense of what your prices should be, because in academia, things are you get paid even teachers who are like full ten like tenured and all that. They don't get paid a ton relative to some other fields. And so it's been a it's a hard mindset to be like no you don't do things for really cheap or free you're allowed to charge what you're worth so there's been a lot of money stuff that's come from academia that's been really really difficult and um what was interesting actually was i was getting a lot of romance novel clients and i'm like i don't do romance novels (laughs) that's below me that's trash Ah. (laughs) i'm losing money off of this let's just see it as a business venture tell you i'm addicted to romance novels now i've read them for my clients i'm like it's just for fun i'm like these are amazing where have you been all my life but there's this weird (laughs) thing where you're like still there's this leftover genre snobbery which has been broken down by like Mm -hmm. oh i can make money if i study this genre i can help more people and also it's a matter of also helping but you're like oh it's purely business venture it's okay and you're like wait i actually really love this This why are people hating on this it's amazing Mm -hmm. i actually think that's a sexist thing about society why romance novels are not valued but i could go on that's like a whole other spiel like that's go a on. whole podcast episode that i would love to record with you maybe i'll come on your show <laughs> that could be fun i'm thinking about starting one so you're you always should. welcome yeah awesome um i'm curious like as you hit kind of some of those stumbling blocks like where what has been your go-to for help around this? Because uh, I I find it, I find it's difficult to ask for help in in academia, but in entrepreneurship, like people are just like failing left and right, telling everyone about how they suck at stuff, and then they're hiring people to help them. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm curious. I'm curious what you where you've turned to when you um you know hit some some struggles with business because it's definitely not easy and it's learning a brand new language for sure. Again, I, I don't know if I'm that much different than everyone else stumbling and then hiring people out. So like, again, coaching also what's helped a lot is talking to other editors. Mm, I'm talking mm -hmm. to people in my field, also talking to authors who are doing well. So people, there's tons of writers who are having six figure um, careers, just writing like fantasy books, romance books for 99 cents on Kindle. Like you'd be amazed that you can make 
like tons of money off this stuff. Like people have multi six figure months yeah. in the industry. Um, and just talking to people and realizing like, especially with the price points, like no other people charge this. Uh, this is what the industry standard is. I have tons of experience, even more than beyond the baseline. I need to raise my prices. Um, and just talking to like, and seeing the success and the money people can make and seeing that, oh yes, there is value to what I have has mm-hmm. been really helpful. It's just even not talking to just, I think the go-to is always business coaches, which I think is great. And I've obviously done it to great success, but staying even in your industry with people who are successful in it, people who are where you want to be. Don't go to people who are not where you want to be or haven't even been in your industry. Cause sometimes editing is so different than life coaching, which is so different than, I don't know, like uh, Facebook ads. It's so different, right? It's like a different even model. Cause it's not time face to face with the client even, mm-hmm. but it's just mm-hmm. talking to people in your industry and it's not competition i think academia breeds competition because there's weight like three thousand spots for one renaissance yeah. professor spot yeah. and the mla is i've heard which is modern language association wow. conference that the claws are out i've heard it's an intense experience that people I like bet. leave with slight ptsd mm. so it's realizing it's not about competition and it's about like cooperation entrepreneurship doesn't have to be sure you could go into the element of competition and academia i think particularly has that at conferences your goal is to tear yep. someone di- not my goal but there were people whose yep. goal was to yep. pick apart someone's argument and ask a question that wasn't a question but oh, just to self-aggrandize <laughs> You know what I'm talking about. I know you know um, what I'm talking yes. about. But it's, it's learning to walk away from that and like be like, no, it's collaborative. And we get like a rising tide lifts all boats kind of attitude. And that's what's really helped me a lot. Besides the typical that. business coach. And when you hit blocks, turning to people who understand and yep. you feel less alone and they actually might have solutions that are applicable. I think that's huge. I, I remember learning that you know, at some point last year, someone said it, whatever, on the internet. (laughs) It might have been a conference I went to. But it was this idea of like, if you have a goal, um, like A, to have a six figure a month, um, you know, editing business, okay, cool, go find someone who's done that. Awesome. Interview them and ask them the five steps, the five major steps that they took to get there. And I was like, oh, yeah. (laughs) And it's true, because we can get so lost along the path to hit this, like what seems like a very, you know, um, wild goal or out there goal, but like lots of people have done it in the world. So rather than just, you know, get all this piecemeal information from everywhere, how can you talk to the people who've done it and how can you model their success? How can you tweak it to fit you? Um, yeah. When I was hearing you talk, I was like, shoot, Sarah, I think your podcast is called the six figure author. <laughs> And we'll, we'll make you. that happen. Write, <laughs> write that down. Write that down. That would be a cool now. convo. I think there's such parallels actually with um, you know creative and artistic fields um, in academia. In that, um, I have a, a couple. I have a um, someone in my mastermind who um, has a membership site for artists, and I think it's called art to life. And then there's someone else who has something called Unde- abundance art artist. But this, the mindset around, I do this for the love. I do this for the art. I do this to create, right? I do this, you know, and then I don't, you know, money is not the reason. So what happens is, is we literally, when we say that to ourselves, <laughs> we're just like pushing money away. Like it's not coming our way when you think that. And I thought the same thing about teaching. So most teachers, and this is K through 12, of course, as well. Most teachers are not in it because they're going to be rich. Um, they've already signed on to the idea that they're, um, that they do this because they love their students and they love what their subject matter is, which is what I got out of, you know, going to the college level versus teaching K through 12 or something like that. So I was in love with the subject and I love teaching that content. So that was it. That was, that was literally filling me. Right. So I thought, and then it's like, Oh, there's these other worlds. There's other sources of fulfillment and there's other, you know, and then, yeah. So I'm with you on similar, the mindset stuff. And so I think authors and people who are writing and um, you know, as a, as a form of art uh, have probably similar things. It's a passion and it's not something that you have to or need to make money for and so there's that sacrificial kind of piece of it it's true and yeah it's not it's not bad to make money that's like a huge thing it's good it helps it helps you so much not like you can't help the world if you're nope. barely struggling to pay your bills. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I guess, yeah, ooh, I like that. That what just popped up for me is 
my world at that time was my classroom. So I was I could help the world with the resources I had, you know, at that time. But if the world is out, is bigger than that, if the world is is millions of people or, you know, several hundred thousands of people, um, the, the resources that I had as a teacher, was, that was not possible <laughs> at that given time. So, <laughs> yes. yeah, so we create our worlds and and like, it, you know, for some people that is enough and, um, and that's cool. And I think what a thread I'm finding with my guests is that actually isn't enough for these, my guests, um, and realizing that once they bridge that gap and kind of make that decision or, you know, think the thought that tells them they want to do something bigger, you kind of can't go back from that because then you start to realize, Oh wait, <laughs> I can do this differently. And, um, and you know, here's how I can do it. Cause there's models and examples everywhere. It's true. It's true. So um, I'd like to hear like maybe as we kind of wrap up a bit here, um, Sarah, I'd like to hear like where you're taking your business. Like what's your vision as we talk about this world changing stuff? <laughs> um, we named your podcast. So that's obviously happening now. Um, what, where are you I'm taking excited. your business? Yeah. What's your what's your vision? What are you what are you out setting out to do? So right now, as I mentioned, I am currently building this editorial agency, which is really exciting. So I'll always be involved with the coaching, but and the developmental, like the content editing, but it's handing off more of like the copy editing and the proofreading to other people. And then it helps to have multiple eyes on a piece. So it's like building this kind of editorial agency is currently where I'm going. Cool. Because I think it's so important if books want to make that six figure status, it needs to be well constructed because if you get one star review, there goes your sales. And then if you get, um, like, and then as a business owner, if your book, you need to put, it's more than a like business card. It's more than a sales, mm. like a part of your sales funnel. Like if you're going to do this, like I have, I will had an interview with a PR expert, Pollyanna Brown, who's amazing oh, yeah. human being. And she told me like, I interviewed her and she's a dear friend of mine. She was like, I will tell, if I read a terrible book by someone that's an entrepreneur, I will tell people not to hire them. Mm. Like she says, I like, straight up will say that she said that on my interview. She's like, straight up, I will not hire them. And if it's amazing, I'll recommend them. And it's also a way to like get your message, like again, accessibility. It's to get your book out to the world. You can charge two ninety nine, still make six figures off that price yes, point. But then it's like, your information and is accessible, and you can teach people in a more accessible way if they can't happen to afford it. And then also if they can afford you, they'll go into your program because they know, like, and trust you. It's but it's also helping people develop the book. So I'm also have a pro- uh, program just launching now where you start with me from the outline, and at the end, I'll I have like an amazing cover designer. I'm contact with who does like us say today like new york times best-selling covers like and she's amazing formatter i know someone who's a marketer that gets people like bestseller status she's amazing and i'm like getting putting this package together so people don't have to worry about it and that they can relax and have their whole book done you can even have a retreat with me in person i just really think good books change the world because books are accessible and but they also help people like you get your views out to people you spread your message and then as an entrepreneur if you want them to hire you that's awesome or you could just even make money off the book by itself because it is possible to make six figures even as a fiction writer boom it has been declared. <laughs> so hire Sarah Fox. No, but true though. I bet a lot of listeners have a book. Um, and you know, ooh, we didn't really talk about this. Like the the whole like turn your dissertation into a book or your research into a book as well. Do you do you actually have any academics as clients? Um, I'm trying to think about this. Yes, I actually just hired someone who's an academic, but it's not related to the field. I've I actually oddly enough shy away from. The I was just going to ask. Clients. Oh wait, maybe they're maybe, not your ideal. <laughs> <laughs> but they're not, I mean, if they were writing a book that's non-academic, sure, I'm definitely interested in it. But the problem I have with so many academic books, I've done an edition of Shakespeare's um, Measure for Measure, which was fun, and I love it. And people actually read that one. But I thought about this, and this is also partially why I've never gone on to get my PhD, was I can write a book about Dickens, sure. Like, the ideas of, I don't know, the household in Dickens, that's obviously been done, so it wouldn't actually be a book. But how many people would read that, honestly? How many people in this world first? I want to write a YA novel that's taking Greek mythology and setting it in a high school setting. Shocker, I know, given my background. How many people would read that as opposed to the Dickens book is what it comes down to. Because I also want my clients to have reach. Yeah, so that's interesting. So this is something... Um like, I'm going to declare it here. Brene Brown will be on this podcast. Um, so 
for those of you <laughs> it listening. Done. It is done. Um, no, but like she, she is kind of one of the reasons I, or she represented why this podcast is even here to me. And it's, um, there's something about the accessibility of her work and the access- accessibility of research that the TED conference actually ushered in to the world. Um, and I, I don't even know, I can't remember when the first Ted conference was. It used to be in Monterey. I used to teach around the corner. Like, you know, that, that whole history really brought the, the boil down in 20 minutes, make it accessible. And Oh my God, people are doing really cool research. And then to see these kind of academics like Brene as an example, whose research on vulnerability, where she was told that this is something that shouldn't be studied, you know, go down a lot of what we talked about today and what I've talked about in this podcast. And then she's doing the thing, you know, she has these books that are changing people's lives. And she's still teaching at Texas, she's still, you know, and um, so it's cool to see, um, because part of me even is thinking that's funny, Sarah, like, I think there's a lot of academics who have some accessible books that have hit mainstream, um, you know, mainstream, whatever, top seller list, right? Um, that that doesn't get classified as academic is is interesting, right? Like it's like absolutely, yeah. Malcolm Gladwell, I'm cool. Like I can ah, happily yes. edit Malcolm Gladwell's work or any or Brene Brown or people like that. I'm totally cool with academic writing if it's like the Malcolm Gladwell, if it's right? For or the Brene Brown. All of us. Yes, <laughs> I think I love that's those the books. message. Accessibility. I get high off those books. Yeah, like those books are amazing. I love. I've had clients with those books. They're great. I'm more concerned about the books where it's still stuck. It's fine. But the point is, you're taking your dissertation and translating it right for the average person to read like Malcolm Gladwell is really good at this people have issues with him I don't know where you stand on him I like him because I don't know the field well so it's really easy for me to understand because he makes it accessible and understandable to the average person Mm -hmm. who might not have a background in it I think the danger is if academics literally take their dissertation and don't spend time rewriting it so it can reach a general audience as long as it's for a general audience I'm absolutely for it I absolutely love reading it I love editing it I love coaching around it but if it's going to be like like I'm sure Malcolm Gladwell could have easily. I'm sorry, I keep using him. He's the first one that keeps coming to mind. <laughs> That's cool. Is that if he, if Obviously, he did it, yeah, you know, you're like, obsessed. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> my my reference was Brene, so no worries. <laughs> call me Malcolm. Anyway, he doesn't need me. He's you fine. Know, he's got but, it figured out. <laughs> he's got it going on. But like, can you imagine if he took his actual research and as he initially read it or what he, the uh, original sources were mm-hmm. and actually put it to the public, would he be uh, like the bestseller that no. he is and as popular as he is? No. no. I think that's great. Academics can publish books yep. on their writing and research. That'd be amazing. I think it should be for more people. That's yep. the problem with the Academy is the inaccessibility, but you have to make sure it's in terms that aren't five syllables long. Yep. <laughs> yes. I feel Preach. passionately. No, I mean, I, I mean, this is why the podcast is like, I want people to start to see, and they're probably realizing like, oh yeah, who the idea that you're writing and no one's reading it and like, and you're, you're pouring your heart into something and it's not making the difference or to change or, or whatever the impact that you see, it's like, that is actually entirely possible. And, um, and to know that it going outside of the Academy might actually be more freeing, um, and, and more open for, you know, uh, to be able to help people accessible, the word accessible again. And I think this idea that, you know, even with Brene and, you know, pre thinking about our interview together, like, you know, she created a brand and she had is, is like, has a movement behind her. And I, you know, I can't wait to talk to her about this. Um, you where, will, right? You like will. this, this idea of like, was that intentional? And like, did you realize like what was happening? Um, you know, and, and now where it is. Right. And I think, you know, and there's a lot, I think there's lots of people like this and, and that's what I want to, man, this is why this podcast exists is so, you know, you don't have to look to, you know, these, yeah, the ivory tower, that imagery, right. To, to be validated. Like, in fact, like doing that is, is, is dimming a lot of the brilliance in, in these institutions. And so like, what if you just said, screw that. And you said, I'm putting this out and like, I can do it in whatever way. And it doesn't have to go to these journals. It doesn't have to go, um, you know, into these stuffy conference rooms, um, with the same people who are literally, 
out to just find the argument and the disagreement because they can and it makes them feel better about themselves. Like, boom, it doesn't need to belong there. And like, there's there are people here to help you translate it to the general public. And I feel like, yeah, Sarah, you represent, um, you know, getting a lot of people's ideas you know, out in an accessible way with your background. And so, you know, this is such important work. I'm like, I'm just so, you know, I, and like, I just want, I feel like you represent to like people listening, potentially, you know, um, thinking about how the institution is whatever failing them or, or not delivering on what they really are really passionate about. And, um, you know, you represent one of the paths that they can take. And I'm just like, so grateful that you were able to come and talk about that today. It's awesome. Yeah. People write your books because you don't have to write your books. Yep. Cause the general public, if you write for the general public, they're not going to be judgy. Like you said, they're just going to be happy. There will to hear be that me, guy so on Amazon who's just an okay, ass for no guy. reason. But <laughs> there is always that guy. Yeah. But as a whole, there's not as many of them. No. And, and also, their arguments can, aren't actually, you know, sound, whereas maybe with an academic, you can get into something where you're like, oh, shit, that actually makes sense. <laughs> and you can write about something that's been done before to death in academia, because I, let's say, I don't know, you're writing about mathematics. I sure as heck don't know about it. It might have been talked about a billion times, but for the average person like myself, it's new. So there's this freedom where you can write what you want and not have to worry about being new because yes. it'll be new to me. Yep. I love it. Dude, this was fun. <laughs> it was amazing. So I had a fun, great time. Sarah. <laughs> um, I looked I look forward to more conversations. Um, and yeah, being on your show, all of that. So where can people find you and connect with you? www.thebookishfox.com is my website. Um, you can also email me at sarah at thebookishfox.com. I'm always happy to respond. And yeah, that's pretty much where you can find me. I'm a big... And on my blog, I write about books and pop culture and writing in pop culture. Ooh, so it comes I full circle. I need to circle. subscribe to that. Awesome. Do you post like um, like on your Facebook business page or anything, like your blog post or something? Mm-hmm. My Facebook page is www.facebook.com slash the bookish fox got it and all my handles on social media is bookish sarah fox bookish, is my handles and i'm always so twitter is where i mostly hang out mm. so that's where you can talk to me and i'm sad that you will have more of a range of letters and characters you can use now that you've expanded it right i used to like the brevity of it as in the shortness but hey i still hang out there so i'm always happy to chat that is good cool and we'll have all those links below as well if you didn't Uh, catch those you can get them uh, with the show notes well Sarah we will wrap up this time but we are definitely going to have future conversations I'm excited for all the work you're doing in the world thank you so much for showing up today thank you for having me 